Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. As soon as you enter the world of fairy tales and myths, you become aware of reoccurring character types and relationships. Questing heroes, heralds who call them to adventure, wise old men and women who give them magical gifts, Threshold guardians who seem to block their way, shape shifting fellow travelers who confuse and dazzle them, shadowy villains who try to destroy them, tricksters who upset the status quo and provide comic relief. In describing these common character types, symbols, and relationships, the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung employed the term archetypes, meaning ancient patterns of personality that are the shared heritage of the human race. The next archetype is the trickster. And I'm glad we had this next because trickster and shapeshifter tend to be confused. You mean like what I just did? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm being the audience character. I confused them too because at first I thought shapeshifter was something very specific. And now that I know what it is, it makes more sense to me. And I think the most important difference is that the shapeshifter is internally unstable. Their self-identity is not complete or concrete. Whereas tricksters tend to know who they are and observe instead the truth externally and use that to their advantage or to ground or to change the status quo. Most importantly, they know who they are and that's where they start. Anyway, the trickster. <laughs> the best definition for the trickster is natural enemy of the status quo. Hmm. Period. Period. <laughs> That is a great definition because every subcategory of trickster, whether it's towards the shadow, towards the hero, towards the ally, because there's generally combinations, tricksters, something else, whatever they are, the biggest function for them is to upset the status quo. Sneaky. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so compelling and cool. <laughs> Other functions, they cause mischief. They make change. They point out truths and imbalances. Subcategories in modern stories tend to be the comic relief. The clown, the joker, and the devil. Mm, that's a big leap there. Exactly. This is why I think this archetype is very useful. Mm. So if we understand the basics of this archetype, then we can mess with it and mm -hmm. change it and switch it up. Just like anything, right? Once you understand it. Once you understand the rules, you can break the rules. Right. So that was their dramatic function which means their psychological function then is to cut egos down. Those who observe the truth and are pretty grounded tend to bring other characters down when they're too egotistical or too up in their heads. <laughs> they're the ones that tend to bring them back to earth. Gotcha. Another psychological function is that they provoke healthy laughter mm. because they are often the comic relief. And the laughter, and especially in dramas, that tends to, again, bring everybody to a common ground. Because sometimes when it's so dramatic, you need laughter to change it up. We get so tied up in the drama yeah. that the comic relief is needed to ground everybody again. Like the classic court jester, mm -hmm. traditionally they would make fun of society. And in order to do that, they had to speak the truth, right? But they made it funny, so it was okay to say it. <laughs> So they didn't get murdered. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a court jester was to do exactly that, is to like entertain people by saying, yeah, this is who you all are. Isn't it funny to see yourselves? Let me be a mirror. Right? It's still pretty common, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, all of our Saturday Night Live, all of them, right? <laughs> there are modern day court jesters. Whenever I think of trickster, I always think of one character in particular, and that's uh, what's his name in Jurassic Park? The mathematician guy, whose name I always forget. But he's what I imagine when I imagine a trickster. Somebody who's like constantly, I don't know, like poking around and looking for the holes and like, and then being kind of funny and dry, but, but also still being kind of right. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 
He's a very interesting trickster character. Okay. And he brings out the truth in other characters just by what he asks or what he points out. He can bring about reactions very naturally. He's like mad, like he's crazy, but he's also truthful, right? That's probably its own archetype in itself. Perfect trickster and compelling. And this kind of goes into the other categories, which is that they bring back perspective by not taking things so seriously. We all need some of that. Absolutely. If your stories do not have some sort of comic relief of some sort. Or your lives. <laughs> I suggest it highly. Yes. Indeed. They can be allies, usually best friends. Um, like in a rom-com, the best friend who kind of messes with the love life of the hero. Mm. Those tend to be trickstery because they're they're trying to upset the status quo of the hero, right? Something needs to change in their love life. So they're like, well, try this. They can be a servant or some sort of partner. For example, in Young Frankenstein, Igor, oh, hmm. even in the classical Frankenstein, <laughs> Igor, right. he's more under the employment of the hero, mm -hmm. but he tends to make a lot of mistakes, which makes him very mischievous. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. I'll be someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Interesting. Especially in Young Frankenstein anyway. His mistakes are comical because he's the comic relief. Right. But again, he's making mistakes and upsetting the status quo. Interesting. Okay, cool. Or they can be completely independent figures. Not of the hero side or the villain side, but just making mischief for mischievous sake. Okay. Q from Star Trek is a good mm -hmm. example of that. God, Q. Right? He doesn't work for anybody. Yet he makes messes wherever he goes. That's his purpose. I was going to say, on purpose. That's his goal. <laughs> but sometimes they're needed, as we see. He can be, his energy can be working on the good side or working on the bad side, but he's mutual in his acts. He doesn't actually intend to do good or bad most mm, of the time. Right. It's just how the other characters interpret it. I'm forgiven. My brothers and sisters of the continuum have taken me back. I'm immortal again! Omnipotent again! Swell. He's just being a little snarky about everything. Exactly. There's only like two types of tricksters that were listed by Vogler, but I'm sure people can come up with a whole lot more. The two important ones are, I think, trickster hero. Hmm. Someone who is the main character of their story, but maybe their purpose is really to cause mischief. To upset the status quo. Interesting. That's their like moral ground. Is, okay. I mean, that's their purpose. And their examples are always coming from folktales. Traditionally, folktales cast mischievous animal characters. For example, the rabbit, the coyote, and the fox. Mm. Those were all three trickster type characters seen in a lot of cultures. Interesting. Even our modern culture, uh, what's his name? Pesky rabbit. Oh, the rabbit bugs. Bugs Bunny, yeah, <laughs> right, is our modern day example of the trickster hero. When she dances, go and see her as she keeps in Francis. What's up, John? Hmm. Okay, like Tom and Jerry, that whole like dynamic. Okay, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, those exactly. A lot of cartoons utilize the trickster hero because it makes sense that in folk tales, those were the ones that were upsetting the status quo. Makes sense. And it was funny. <laughs> Or the trickster hero can sometimes act as catalyst. They're the comic relief, but they're doing so in order to change the characters around them. Again, the Beverly Hills Cop, right? Eddie Murphy is definitely the comic relief. He is a hero in the story, mm -hmm. but he's acting as a catalyst. That humor he uses to change those around him. Interesting. And, and he creates mischief, obviously, because he antagonizes them. He asks the right questions. He points out the right truths. Seems like a really hard character to write. I don't know. That seems just difficult to write to me. <laughs> I, that's probably why we don't see too many of them. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. And then there's the opposite side of the spectrum, the mm. trickster shadow, mm -hmm. or as Joseph Campbell calls him, the clown tyrant, Ooh. which is a bit scarier, actually. <laughs> I don't like that combination. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, well, the main thing is that they upset the status quo in order to save themselves generally. I've never heard of that. <laughs> never? Never. Great. So Loki doesn't ring any bells? I don't know what that is. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Nor to God, not at all. He tends to be 
funny because the way he upsets the status quo is is not it's not like gory or bloody, mm-hmm. but it tends to be animated. Yeah, or strange or creative. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. This is going off of the movies, I guess. Maybe I don't. <laughs> in the comic books, maybe I don't know as much. I think yeah, adding the word clown to tyrant is very specific. You know, you could put any two words together, but to me, those two words together is very disturbing. Like you said, it makes me think of you know the the orange blob that's running our country, for instance. The worst, absolute worst clown tyrant I can absolutely think of. Because even Hitler wasn't a clown tyrant. Sorry, did I overstep? No, I'm just shaking. You can't see me. I am (laughs) nodding my head because she has the perfect example based on this definition. I'm just about to read right now. No, I'm glad you said it because what? Listen to this and tell me it's not perfect. (laughs) The clown tyrant works in continuous opposition to the well-wishing creator. They're clever deceivers. They are the mistakers of shadow for substance. They symbolize the inevitable imperfections of the realm of shadow. And so long as we remain on this side of the veil, they cannot be done away. And I think when he says this side of the veil, it means that because the clown tyrant is both characters of the shadow as well as blind idiots most of the time. Interesting. They can never transcend their own stories. As long as the clown shadow operates in the shadows, they never complete their journey. And they are to forever remain in the ordinary world, mm. honing energy only for themselves. So we've talked about that, right? That every character has the potential to get back onto their hero's journey. Mm-hmm. So if they're able to get back to that, then they would continue on their hero's journey. But they can't move on until they're able to get past that. Absolutely. Part. Interesting. Until then, they're the static, the unmoving, the unchanging, the illness in the world. But they're they're also not necessarily shadow, right? Because we're talking about trickster. So there is that element of the clown still, which I think is fascinating because I tend to think of pure shadow characters. But somebody, like you said, like Loki, if he were just like evil, like Thanos or something, then he wouldn't be the clown tyrant he wouldn't be the the trickster anymore he'd be the shadow right absolutely yeah the element that i think differentiates the tyrant from the tyrant clown is that the clown is also i don't want to say idiotic but (laughs) they say it they they operate well yeah idiotic because they they operate from knowledge that they don't move away from somebody working in the shadows can still gain new knowledge right and change themselves even if it's worse, they're still doing it. Right, right. They're capable of change, even if it's in the wrong direction. The clown is just stuck because they don't take mm. any new information at all. Damn. They just, they fester there in their unchangeability. You mean the jester has to fester? Is that what you're <laughs> telling me? The jester festers. <laughs> really interesting. Right? Isn't that the perfect definition for the orange ball? Orange face. <laughs> <person? Yeah. laughs> so I think that's, that's, you're right. It's kind of scarier in a lot of ways. Or, I don't know, is it? I don't know. I just think, I don't know if it's scarier, but for me, it's more psychologically damaging. It's harder to get out of something like that. When you enter shadow, it's life or death. You could die for your cause. But if you're just stuck in this horrible place where you can't go either direction until you change, but you can't change because you're like reflecting off of yourself, that just sounds like horrible. And there's a reason we don't really like those characters. I mean, I love Loki, but... I would consider him less powerful than the orange blob. Absolutely. And because of that, I can enjoy his trickery more than I can enjoy the other ones. Yeah, there's definitely levels of that trickster clown tyrant. Interesting. It's a very interesting archetype or sub-archetype or whatever you want to call it. Totally. It is. Yeah, a lot of potential there too for your characters. Totally. Our classic example wonder woman i said of course Ares, mm-hmm. who is the god of war traditionally in greek mythology and in the movie i call them more the trickster shadow clown category okay okay because again tricksters can be for the heroes they can be for the shadows or they can be independent in this case this trickster is very much working in the shadows and he's a shapeshifter like a difference, right? Again, the shapeshifter doesn't know who he is internally. Oh, yeah. God damn it. I know. I know. Every time. Every time. They perform functions of a shapeshifter, which is changing physical shape to deceive. Right. So that's correct. 
But internally, they are not right. shapeshifters because Ares knows who he is and he doesn't change his mind. Right. You're right. Okay. Which did you get that, everybody? I did that for your sake. It wasn't me. <laughs> she was acting as the audience character. That's right. That's just going to be my excuse from now on for everything, <laughs> even when there's no audience. <laughs> but you're right. He deceives and he tricks other characters by putting on the mask of another. Well, he puts on the mask of ally through most of the movie, right? We think he's one person in the yeah. movie. Yeah. At the critical moment, he reveals who he truly is. Ares. Ares, the god of war. Yeah. Who was always a dude and was never a woman, just FYI. <laughs> oh, that's right, because you thought he was a woman. <laughs> so other reasons I consider Ares the trickster character, he doesn't actually tell any lies. He mm-hmm. just tells select truths, especially at the end when we know he's Ares and Wonder Woman's like, what are you talking about? You're the bad guy. And he's like, well, am I? Let me tell you a few truths here. This is the land as it used to be, which was like the land of Eden. And he even shows Wonder Woman. He's like, this is what it was like. It was beautiful. Right? Right? He's grounding everybody. He's saying, well, this is the reality of it. I'm not just the bad guy. This is what I'm fighting for. Right. And then it's Wonder Woman who has to sort of decide if mankind is worth saving. Right. So in a lot of ways, he's, yeah, he's the truth sayer in that situation. It's very dynamic because the arguments he makes are not uncalled for i mean he because he's not outright saying let's slaughter humanity but he's telling you all the things that would be different and better without humanity and it's hard to argue it it's like yeah yeah i see it it's definitely obvious you know so i I like that he's got that silver tongue aspect absolutely he's also the shadow clown because obviously he breaks the rules of the what we call the well-wishing creator Mm. Not we, what Joseph calls, <laughs> Joseph Campbell calls the well-wishing creator. Traditionally, the the devil figure tends to be the opposite of the god figure, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking of God Zeus in Wonder Woman as the original good creator, then Ares is his opposite, who is the fallen angel. The fallen angel, <laughs> the one who wants to kill the creation, destroy the creation of the god creator. So traditionally, that works perfectly. And then we already said that he externally deceives people in order to get what he wants. They do it so well, too. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I had no idea. Right? It was done so well. That was what we call an appropriate twist. Hmm. I think. (laughs) You were so confident. Well, I mean, I, because when, you're right, it was surprising, but I wasn't like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Right. It did make sense. It totally made sense. Right? I was, yeah, it was definitely shock. It wasn't a a lie. It was a twist. Exactly. You got that from Bob's Burgers. There's a difference between a lie and a twist. Ah, very cool. What's the difference? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's doing a show, and at the very beginning, she tells them, I'm not the murderer, and then they do a play. And then at the end, she's like, was it this person who did the murder? Was it that person who did the murder? No, it was me all along. And one of the audience members is like, that's a lie. I mean, you told us a lie. She's like, no, it's a twist. And he's like, no, that was a lie. (laughs) You told us that you weren't it. So it leaves you feeling gypped. Oh, right. As opposed to like surprised. Perfect example. Yeah. Thank you, Bob's Burgers. And then in our contemporary example, mm-hmm. again, there wasn't really a character I would cast as trickster in Field of Dreams. Mm. But the character who temporarily puts on the mask, I would say, is the wife, Annie Kinsella. It's for a good reason, and it's towards the hero rather than any sort of villainy. She's being trickster because she points out truths. And she grounds everybody. She asks the right questions when we need to hear them. Like you said, she's our audience character. Right. Uh, And that's a very shared quality among allies and tricksters that they tend to say, like, okay, let's look at these things in, like, a shared perspective here. Right. (laughs) Let's take a step back, shall we? Exactly. And she plays that part very well. And because she's all spunky, you know, it, it feels like a good thing. Totally. Other than that, though, I didn't really feel any trickster energy from other characters. Did you? I feel like, and this is not even very much, it's a tiny bit. I feel like the one that would have a teeny tiny bit of trickster in them is the voice. Right. You mentioned that. Yes. Just because it's not clear 
the voice is not being clear. It's like alluding to things and it it's leading him in the right direction, but it's not giving him much to go on. Absolutely. That voice is absolutely uh, upset of the status quo as well, right? They're the herald. They have to create change in order for the hero to go somewhere. Right. So that's all I have to say about the trickster. That's really interesting. Thank you. And we come to our final archetype. Now shall you deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty, which I thought was great because I didn't actually, I don't remember like Disney using a lot of like heaven and hell terminology, but she like gets down with it. The shadow is obviously everything that hasn't been brought to the light, which we'll talk about, but that was sort of like a Jungian perspective on shadow. Psychologically, it's the power of the repressed. Deep trauma or guilt, the darkness of the unconscious, hidden or denied emotions, old fears, bad habits, psychosis, uh, which is a mental disorder characterized by a disconnection with reality, which is sometimes misunderstood. That's why I wanted to throw that in there. Um, most of all, it's like a powerful internal force with a life of its own and its own set of priorities. So it is, it does kind of feel like the little demon that lives inside of you. It's super fun. It's like everything that you don't like about yourself or don't want to see about yourself. It's usually very, psychologically, it's very internalized. I think a lot of like hate towards something on the outside is a reflection, it's a projection of what's going on inside. So I would argue that most of shadow stuff in the psychological realm is internal. Do you have any fun uh, psychological problems you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, that's not the question I thought you were going to ask. <laughs> What's your shadow? What is my shadow? <laughs> huh. I was going to say mine, mine was smoking cigarettes for a long time. That definitely had its own little life, right? It had certain demands that it made of me. Um, and now that I don't smoke and have like given up all of that it's it still comes out to play once in a while but i'm able to sort of suppress it interesting in a good way not in a bad suppression way no but that's a good way of thinking about it because it's definitely like a bad habit and it's an addiction which would be a great and it's kind of always there you're always aware of it you're always working on it interesting well that narrows mine down (laughs) (laughs) it might be the people pleaser thing Mm. for the longest time i was totally a a people pleaser and it was making me really sick i'm not naturally a people person and i forced myself to be early on and now that i realize that i'm i'm able to kind of come back from it but there's always that little demon that comes out right right and it's easy for me to go back because you know people's energies really affect me and i have to keep that in check i'm like no i have my own energy thank you very much (laughs) interesting that's what i like the most about the shadow about what I just said is that it does have its own set of priorities. And I think that comes across really well in fiction. I mean, when we're watching stories or listening to stories. So character-wise, it's a part of the personality that embodies everything a character called the self. What it doesn't like about themselves, the things they often um, keep subconsciously, um, deny about themselves, and project onto others. So it's very similar, except that it's made into an example it's like uh what do you call that when you animate something that's inanimate revive no no when you said (laughs) genesis it's like yeah it's like taking a concept and making it into a living uh, creature or character right personifying personifying thank you i was like anamorphing it's not a word it took me way too long too it's personifying something Usually that's hate. It can be power. There's a lot of different things that it can be. One of the fun things, fun isn't horrifying things about the shadow, is that the more something is repressed, the more powerful it becomes. Oh my god. So it makes a lot of sense that these characters, these villains, uh, is what they are in the shadow, get pushed further and further as their plans do not go as they want them to go and as the hero continues to annoy them in a lot of ways it's like you know we're just talking about internalizing this it's you know you're your hero but your demons are in there and you're having to fight them and you don't always win but the more you fight them the more agitated they get and the more they demand of you and the more dangerous the villain becomes 
Very much so. And they become desperate at some points, right? And again, internalizing it, you know, addiction. There, addiction is something that a lot of people cannot do on their own to get to 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 get through it because it's it's too much. It's too big. I guess I like that metaphor only because then you have your allies, you know, that come out, which is yourself, but other people who can help you with treatment and everything. Internal, external, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the energy of the dark side is the unexpressed, the unrealized or de- or rejected aspects of something. All the things we don't like about ourselves, all the dark secrets we can't admit to ourselves. And the shadow is, of course, like the most feared archetype because it represents everything that we are trying to hide. It also contains healthy feelings that we should naturally have, but are afraid to show. Ah, right. I think for some reason what comes to mind with that is like masculinity, toxic masculinity. I think a lot of boys are taught not to show feeling or not to feel certain things. And this would be like a good example of that. And that's a societal shadow. Yeah. Because that just festers unless the society confronts it and starts to teach a different lesson and to heal those who already live in that toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. Huge. And they're huge. I mean, they're, they're uh, like you just said, but they're, they're, they're big. <laughs> I can't tell you what's wrong. <laughs> I, just, like, I can't remember what it's called. Um, system, they're systemic mm. shadows. You know, they're things that you can work on individually, but as a whole, it needs to be addressed. So there's um, one distinction I want to make between antagonists and villains. And this is according to Vogler. He talks about that antagonists are not usually quite so hostile. They may agree with the hero, but not how the hero is doing things. So they can, they're a little bit down a step or half a step um, compared to villains, which are sort of like the apex, the shadow, and interact with the hero like two trains, like colliding. You know, they're the opposite in every way i think that's where we get the term arch enemy right totally which is like a unnecessary i mean it's kind of redundant but it's like the next step up from a villain a quote villain you know joker and batman except for in the lego batman movie which i thought was amazing (laughs) they like have a mutual respect for each other even though they can't they're enemies you know but usually yeah usually the villain or the arch enemy is it would be very difficult for the, the hero in that character to find a common, common ground. ground. It's probably not going to happen. Okay, so there's a couple different, I mean, there's a lot of different shadows. But, of course, um, some characters wear the mask of the shadow. Uh, sometimes the self wears the shadow mask. The, the hero may wear their own. The mentor and shadow are a really popular combination, which I think is really interesting because... Because it can go the other way as well. So there can be a mentor who wears the mask of the shadow and there can be the shadow who wears the the mask of the mentor. And I like that second one because I find it really interesting that a shadow character would consider even being a mentor and not necessarily in, in a bad sense either. I mean, some are, but... We kind of briefly talked about this, but in, you know, Darth Vader's mentor, Palpatine. Palpatine? Palpatine. Palpatine. Palpatine sounds like a something you'd, like, wash your sink with. Do you want to wear Palpatine? <laughs> or, or hang up during Christmas. <laughs> I like it. Darth Vader's mentor, Palpatine, is very much that shadow with the mentor mask, right? Because right. he is training Darth Vader. He's not necessarily training Anakin Skywalker. Right. And he's first and foremost the villain, or the sh- he works in the shadow first before right. the mentor. I'm looking forward to completing your training. In time, you will call me Master. Whereas on the other side, who's one of my absolute favorite characters is Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. He is in many ways a mentor to Clarice Starling and sort of helps her along and helps her sort of find her edge in a world dominated by men who are constantly like looking over her and talking over her. The book is fantastic. I never thought I would like that book so much but it's really really cool more than the movie you see sort of their relationship and how he he really is sort of that mentor character to her oh no 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 you were doing fine you had been courteous and receptive to courtesy 
You had established trust with the embarrassing truth about Migs. And now this ham-handed segue into your questionnaire. Wow, that's funny because that's not what I... Well, I haven't seen it or read it, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. And that's just based on what everybody says. And I uh, maybe they don't... They probably don't understand... Why? Why? <laughs> and of course, you do because you read the book and you understand these things. And it's just really compelling because you, I mean, I want to believe that even the shadow has that nurturing nature. There's a reason I like the Ice Queen. You know, I believe in that sort of change from pure shadow to like even just shadow mentor is an improvement. And there, there you don't really, I never really got the sense that he would actually hurt her. Exactly. And that would have been really easy to do, but I never got that. Right. They they tend to have a moral code, even if it's their own, and it could be messed up, but they have one. Uh, outer purpose, again, to society may not feel like a worthy cause, but to them is something to strive for. Hence, the shadow being able to change is still very true. And why the clown tyrant is not really in that category because they don't have that moral center or external goal. Right. And I, I think we kind of touched on this, but humanizing the shadow is another aspect of the shadow that I really gravitate towards because I feel like those are the most relatable. When in Harry Potter, when we see Tom Riddle and his sort of beginnings, there's a lot of humanizing that happens there because you understand that even though he was always sort of a dark child he was just a child and he was treated really poorly and you know that goes into whole you know nature versus nurture and all that fun stuff but i think melting the shadow is not even necessarily melting the shadow but just exposing or humanizing the shadow can make it all that more terrifying because you can then relate yourself to it absolutely which is what you should be doing. I mean, that's because it's us. It's just manifest, right? Exactly. We all have levels of it. All levels of melting that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Some more than others. I mean, I think, I mean, we talked about this, but obviously in storytelling, we're seeing the external shadow. I think in some cases you could probably see an internal shadow on a bigger scale than just being like part of the beeline. But for the most part, we're seeing the external shadow. And I just thought it was really well written where I read this. I don't remember. I think it was Vogler, but it might have been another article. The external shadow has to be destroyed by the hero. It's just sort of part of the job. <laughs> and even in Harry Potter, you know, he does destroy him, but there is still a little bit of essence left. of the. So, I mean, you can destroy, quote unquote, but there's still, it's always going to be part of you to some degree. Balance. Absolutely. And then the internal shadows can be in dis, uh, dis, uh, disemboweled. Not disemboweled. <laughs> Whoa, I mean, you could, I guess. <laughs> internal shadows can be disempowered by bringing them to the light, which is what we kind of talked about in the beginning. And, I mean, the, the examples of these are very obvious. I mean, Voldemort is what we talked about. Uh, Sauron, Lord of the Rings. Maleficent was something I mentioned earlier. Can I also mention... We might have mentioned this in the last episode, which is the hero who doesn't complete their journey tends to fall into the shadow category because in order to complete their journey, the hero must encompass the all and be able to share that somehow with their community, with their ordinary world, bring back the boon, right? It's always not about them, but something else bigger than them. So when they get stuck in the shadow, it means they become the the hoarder of the gifts. That is considered the disease of mm. the natural world. And hence, there's always another hero to sort of bring back that balance. I think that's also another concept that is helpful for the writer to know that there's a potential drama there that can be had. And the hero needs to keep going or else there's the potential of falling into the shadow right and some stories utilize that sometimes they do fall yeah. and that's where they end their story and then the audience is like i don't get it what's the lesson and they're like oh don't fall into the shadow that's the <laughs> lesson. or they're saved by an ally by a mentor by them giving them a gift pointing out a truth and Knowledge. they and they are able to transcend themselves finally and complete their journey I think it's all good to know as a viewer and as a writer. 
Shadow, okay, so the Shadow and Wonder Woman, I'm going to say that there are two antagonists, right? And then there's one villain, which I think we all know who that is. But the antagonists would be the two characters we haven't really talked about, which is Dr. Poison and General Eric Ludendorff. Ludendorff. (laughs) I believe that's how you say it, Eric. I think C-H in German is K. So I'm pretty sure it's Eric Ludendorff. He's the, they have a really interesting dynamic, the two of them. Dr. Poison is a really interesting character. She's like a mousy little thing. And she creates all these poisons that usually take form of, in the form of gas that they could use on the front line or on, in the war in general, that would destroy, basically work through the gas mass, which is like diabolical. But because her and the general are sort of smaller players and they're not the ones leading everything, even though they think that they are, that makes them more of the antagonist in this case than it does the villain, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's the other side of the war. Both sides of the war think they're doing the right thing. And both these characters absolutely think that too, especially since they think they're losing World War II. They're like, oh, well, Germany's going to surrender. And they're like, oh, heck no. (laughs) And if we have anything to say about it, and they're coming from a place of some patriotism there. It's interesting. I would say the general is also a trickster, or not a trickster? Yeah, a trickster. Because he knows what he's doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, I'm learning. Yeah. He turns on his own Nazi co-workers, co-workers, <laughs> in order to continue his work. And he and Dr. Poison are sort of in this, like I said, they have a really interesting dynamic. It almost feels like father-daughter at some points. And he's like kind of protective of her, but she's also seeks his approval. So there's kind of like a mentory thing. Very there. interesting. Yeah. But she, you know, she's pretty, she's like a little messed up, whereas he's just like addicted to power. Right. Which is a little bit easier to relate to. It's, we can understand it from afar, you know, but with her, it's a little bit more like, ugh, you know, because it's... Meaning she probably wouldn't be doing what she's doing unless he supported her. And encouraged her and like, yeah, really like praised her for her work. Right. It's a lot of, yeah, approval stuff in there, Mm. which is very interesting. And then I was like, yeah, that's it. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, the the big villain. (laughs) And then the villain, of course, is Steve Trevor. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Whoa. It's Ares, uh, the dude with the horns and is a god. Did you have any more things to add to that? I mean, it's. I think we kind of already talked about him. It's pretty obvious that he's representing the other half of what Zeus, you know, Zeus loved humanity and he wants to destroy it. Right. He feels like he's worthy in his cause. He's even trying to convince who we understand to be his sister, Wonder Woman, because she was also born of Zeus. Oh, by the way, Ares is supposed to be, (laughs) I didn't mention this, Ares is supposed to be the son of Zeus. So even though we're talking about him as the opposite of Zeus, he's also his son. Which makes sense. Totally. No, (laughs) she's rolling her eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he feels that he's right, he's doing everything in his power to gain allies, to convince people that this is the right way to do things. You know, he's doing things in a way where if if we were following his story, we'd be like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, he's the hero of his own story, which again makes it a compelling villain versus just a, I'm an all evil being and I'm not going to tell you why. Sort of like Sauron in Lord of the Rings or Voldemort in Harry Potter. That's why they tend to be less compelling because we get pieces of their story, but there's no cause there that we understand and can sympathize with. That second half is for sure. Yeah. I sorry, I interrupted you. No, Keep no, going. no. <laughs> I was like, is that true? I'm, I, I'm thinking that that's true. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, Voldemort, we get a little bit more. I, I don't really know Sauron as well. But I would say with Voldemort, you know, we get little pieces of what his life was like. But a lot of it was implied that he was already kind of this way. Exactly. If we saw more of an abusive childhood, we'd be able to recognize that there's more at play here and that would make it more interesting because we all understand that to some degree trauma right right not abusing our children (laughs) (laughs) and if we would have seen more of that diversity that's why severus snape for example is more empathetic because he was more diverse there was a lot of good in him that we saw disappear for good reasons yeah hence a compelling 
antagonist slash villain. He's my favorite character. Right? Of course. But I right? just, I love him so I much. I can see why. Yeah. Very compelling. Yeah. Whereas when you say Voldemort, people are like, yeah, darkness. Sauron. Yes. Darkness. Period. Right. right. I mean, yeah. I would agree that villains are uh, a little bit more boring. <laughs> I mean, really, though, it's true. The most interesting part of the villains is how they're going to manipulate and affect the hero. Exactly. But other than that, like, standing alone, they they tend to be sort of like, okay. I mean, yeah, sure. That's, yeah, that's a bad thing. Cool. Especially if they say corny lines. Well, that doesn't ever help. <sighs> I'm going to monologue now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> and for no good reason, really. Uh, yeah. In Field of Dreams, there's really only one shadow that I could find. I mean, there's a couple little shadows, antagonists and things. Like, I think that there's more internal shadows in Field of Dreams, which is why it's probably our contemporary version. Terrence Mann has a lot of inner demons. We talked about that. That's a lot of shadow, internal shadow. The doctor maybe has a little, it's more like regret. I don't know if I would call that shadow, but it's, you know, things that we've suppressed. Absolutely. Whatever. But the the only really main shadow I could come up with, externalized shadow, was Mark, which is Ray's brother-in-law, which, of course, it's always the brother-in-law. Always the player brother. <laughs> he is looking out for his sister and his brother-in-law's best interests but in a really stupid way he's really annoying he's like a fly that you just want to swat he's he's just constantly like telling ray that he's crazy that they're gonna lose the farm and that they need to sell and that's not bad advice it's just the way he does it and overstepping the bounds and constantly like i don't know it's just i don't like it and i would call that single-mindedness and failure to empathize yeah. with the people he's trying to convince like he i mean sure he might have his sister's best interest but he's not listening to her she yeah. wants the farm if he were a good brother he would understand that and be like oh okay so let's work a different plan here but he doesn't it's all about his plan he's going to stick to it and he's just going to shout at them until they change their minds yeah it also has like some gross i don't know male male female dynamics like, he's definitely overstepping his bounds and, like, trying to speak for her. And she doesn't really let him, but she is trying to deal with it on her own so that Ray can do his thing, which is a very wife thing to do. Right. It's noble, but it's maybe flawed. <laughs> right. But he was, yeah, he was pretty much the only one I could think of that fell into external shadow. Do you have any other... Oh, I was going to say, that again, as you said, that's our contemporary example because there's degrees of shadow versus just a villain or even just an antagonist. I, I would call the brother-in-law an antagonist because he's working against the hero in a lot of ways. It's not for extreme reasons. He's he's a type of ally that's gone into a shadow. Totally. Yeah. I Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's pretty amazing that it doesn't, that this film didn't have more of an antagonist but i think you're right i think the the elements of antagonism are internal in all of our characters and that sometimes is, is more compelling to watch because you're seeing the heroes fight inner demons the whole time while trying to work out what to do externally with those demons it just it sounds really boring i know it does <laughs> i mean you know what i mean like i don't want to watch somebody trying to figure out their internal issues but when you see it in this film and because of the magical realism and because it's so well written and acted in and directed that you can explore those with them absolutely it's pretty impressive because yeah if you were to pitch that to me as part of your script i'd be like no <laughs> move on it's not compelling there's not enough problems there and it's all internal like right. this is film we're supposed to see it externally so right. what are you talking about with internal things but it works i think i even mentioned to you after watching field of dreams this last time is that when i sort of zoomed back from the societal setting which is that baseball meant a whole lot more to culture back then yeah. i mean that was the pastime. And I think even now we still understand that because historically there was a lot going on with baseball and patriotism. And in the movie, they set up a scene where 
this baseball team was falsely accused of cheating. And those who were their fans and those who sort of relied on that patriotism fell off their hero's journey. Yeah. And they were all affected by it and became a chain reaction where all these father figures were affected. And there's that old time, you know, the 60s movement was brought up a lot. And that's because that was also happening at that time. And it felt rejuvenating. Right. And suddenly that fell short and they had to revive that again. So there's a lot of, I don't know what to call it, societal elements that fell into the shadows too. Yeah. That had to be brought back by these characters. So when I realized that, I was like, that's another reason why this film is really well written. It's not blatantly told that that's what's happening here. That, oh, we're pointing out that the 60s was great and <laughs> baseball was great. They don't say that. <laughs> but God. they express it in these characters. And we understand these characters had a story in the light before. And now they have to come back to the light. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's a good way of telling it. Yeah. Like it. And you did, you did remind me of another shadow that I had completely forgotten about. It's very brief, but it's the other townspeople. Oh, yeah. In their town, like they start talking about Ray, that he's hearing voices and they kind of give him a hard time. And it, it's very typical. You're like, yeah, this is what I expect from people. But it's very brief. Totally. But I would say that's another antagonistic element. Again, not maybe maybe more shadow just in terms of what it represents. Absolutely. But in, in interference-wise, it's gone you know it's so fast ray could be like whatever townspeople i mean he really i mean it's like one scene right and then we don't really go back to that and then you know at the end they'll come ray then you see all the people coming then you're like yeah now they're gonna be happy about it aren't they wow you're right (laughs) yeah the the general ensemble is that what you would call the townspeople (laughs) <laughs> the townspeople the townspeople if we call them collectively a character you're right they were all opposed they're not believers they think ray's not a farmer they make fun of him they're book burners because we yeah, get a scene where <laughs> yeah where they have to be convinced that book burning is probably not a good idea it's going against the ideals of the 60s right. and patriotism which is what baseball was so they're right. all opposed to that until the end where we see that maybe everybody can be believers because that energy has shifted. Yeah. So you're right. They play a perfect yeah. role for that. Yeah, that's a good catch. I mean, that was, you brought the catch. I mean, you just you brought it. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I think that's everything I had for the shadow at the moment. Cool. And I'm really glad we get to talk about these things and I hope that they get stuck in people's minds because it's easier to talk about characters sometimes when you have sort of a, a general umbrella term to describe certain kinds of things i said that really confusingly but you understood it right oh i, I was gonna say i understood i uh, i don't know how i would say that more clear my boss the other day was being a real shadow let me just tell you <laughs> no that's not true okay, there's a real trickster my guy's obviously a shapeshifter today at work i was an ally actually that's a good thing to say i shouldn't make fun of that but you're right recognizing these personalities these roles will benefit not only our our stories, but ourselves. Society, right? Absolutely. And we, as I think I mentioned in the previous episode, we're going to dive into specific ones in future episodes. Yes, because we obviously have some that we find very fascinating. Oh, there's so much more to learn there. And I just, I just want to add that I feel like one of the reasons I like talking about these and reading about these so much is that it is a sort of metaphorical way to look at ourselves and it allows us the space that we need sometimes for for self-awareness and self-understanding because it is it's too much sometimes to look at it directly but if we can look at it you know at a little bit of an angle it makes that process possible for a lot of people including myself so i think next time Next, I was going to say next week, but we don't meet weekly because we have lives that don't allow us to do that. Not that with this, you know what I mean. We can't afford it is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and then next time that we talk, we'll be, do we want to talk about what we'll be talking about? <laughs> <laughs> or shall we wait until? You can do that thing where you hint at to what we're talking about. Okay. Or this you can is, just say it. No, no, no. <laughs> this, is, this is something I thought about when I was reading the book version of the movie. There, this What we're going to talk about has a book version and a movie version. And when I was reading the book version, I was thinking about how the movie version must have come to be. And there's only one answer as to how it got to be changed into what it was in the film version. And 
that way is Oprah Winfrey. <gasps> Don't would you agree? Totally. Because otherwise that would have never the changes that were made never would have happened if it weren't for the money and power and awesomeness of Oprah Winfrey. That should give you the perfect hint because there's only so many options after that. Really? So we should thank Jesse. I can't remember if we agreed to say his last name or not. But mean Martinez? <laughs> or Sorry, is it just Jesse? <laughs> if you get in trouble, it's not our fault. And then I also wanted to send a shout out to uh, two new listeners that we have. Um, Laura and Penny. They, like, are awesome and have sent us really nice messages and have been really engaged with the archetype oh, um, yay. episodes. And Laura, I, she told me that she discovered the first archetype episode that we did. On, it came out on her birthday, and she was talking about archetypes when oh she my found God. it. So I was like, cool, synchronicity. Oh, it was meant to be. Totally. And we've inspired Penny to, to write some interesting things that maybe I'll get to mention later if she lets me. Sounds good. So thank you. Can't wait. To you too as well. If you would like to not vote, we're not running for <laughs> if election. If you'd like to <laughs> elect us into office, please go to. If you'd like to rate and review us on iTunes, we would very much appreciate it. That's at Bite the Pen. We're on Twitter at Bite the Pen. You can email us, bitethepen at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate, we would very much appreciate it. Uh, no pressure. No things are tough right now. But you can do that on Patreon. At Bite the Pen. So our exit quote comes from Christopher Vogler, the book we read. And he says, and this is a general way of thinking of archetypes, which Jen summed up very well already. I think Jen is pretty good at generalizing. I don't, is that uh, what Jen is good right. at? <laughs> but he writes it. The concept of archetype is an indispensable tool for understanding the purpose or function of characters in a story. If you grasp the function of the archetype, it can help you determine if the character is pulling her full weight in the story. The archetypes are part of the universal language of storytelling, and a command of their energy is as essential to the writer as breathing. <laughs>